Welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name's Edwin Davis, and joining me this week through the Miracle of Satellite Technology, it's Emily Benita. Hi, Emily. How's it going? Going very well. Thank you, Ed. I have to say, uh, I, I'm still well, well you know, and um, even though my beloved Scotland uh, were knocked out of the Euros, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm coming to terms with it, and, and then Wales as well mm. and also coming to terms with it but the Danes are still in um and I feel like I I do wonder sometimes if I support something is that the kiss of death or, <laughs> <laughs> uh politics football teams all sorts of things um but yes uh <laughs> I'm grand thanks how are you uh yeah I'm okay enjoying like fairly nice weather at the moment here uh in florida obviously uh all the news is full of how terrible the heat waves are on the kind of like west coast and the pacific particularly the pacific northwest where um they've got a heat dome and it's particularly bad over there so uh, much love to anyone listening to the show from that area i hope that uh, you're able to uh weather it uh no no absolutely no pun intended it sounds like an absolutely miserable experience but Yes, uh, I, I'm, I'm okay. Uh, I went to go and see a movie in a theatre for the second time since the pandemic started yesterday, and I'll be talking about that movie as the main topic. Um, but that was quite nice. Again, uh, much like the first time, it was interesting kind of going in and getting used to the rhythms of going to a cinema again, like buying tickets, going in, you know, finding a seat, sitting down, trying to gauge the level of comfort that I personally feel and whether or not I'm going you know, to wear a mask for the whole thing or not in the end uh, because there are only three people in the cinema I did not <laughs> so I've kind of felt reasonably safe not wearing one and also I'm you know fully vaccinated and all that sort of thing so like I feel like that seems you know like a fairly safe thing to do uh, with my level of, of protection and just my general assessment of how these things go but no that, that was quite nice and it was nice to kind of have a, a certain sense of normalcy around these things like that but was things still feeling obviously different because you know the staff are all wearing masks and they're not showing as many films as they used to like they're not showing films throughout the day now uh, the cinema i went to is only doing like evening showings of films and they're kind of like spacing them out so the cinema itself was like quite empty but clearly there were lots of people like going to watch fast nine or whatever um but yeah, that was that, that was nice. That was a, a nice experience, and again, like I say, a nice feeling of of returning to something resembling normal normalcy, even though in every other regard, like you know, I'm still working from home and stuff, quite far from normal. But that that was quite nice. That is nice. I guess the only thing about uh, things returning to normal is you know the Conan is no longer on late night. That's something I'm I'm kind of adjusting to, even though. I've never watched an entire <laughs> one of his shows, but it's just, that's, that's most of my life. He's been doing that one job. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Same for me. Like I, he was not someone who I like watched regularly, but there was, uh, 
but like I, he he was definitely one of those people who like uh, you know a video of something he did on his show would kind of like go across my uh, Twitter feed or get posted on Facebook, and I'd be just kind of like, oh man, that's like really funny. Obviously, he's a very funny dude, and he hires lots of really funny people, and he seems to really enjoy making late night television this own little weird space for him to kind of do whatever he wanted, and as we discussed previously when they announced that that show was ending you know he's got a variety show that he's going to be doing on hbo which is going to start off like fairly soon i think and he's going to continue doing stuff for tbs like uh his travel show and things like that so it's not like he's going away but it definitely feels like an end of an era because he was like the last genuinely quite weird dude on late night television kind of like operating within the old format as opposed to you know someone like an Eric Andre doing a kind of like absurd over-the-top parody of the concept so we'll go on to the news I guess that that was kind of news but we'll kind of like delve into some more news uh this week uh it seemed a fairly quiet one uh, in terms of like big things happening but yeah just before we started you and I were both talking about how we're quite excited by a bit of casting news, which was the news that Lawrence Fishburne, Sam Elliott and Mickey Rourke are all joining the MacGruber uh, television series, which is going to be airing on Peacock, the NBC streaming service, at some point uh, this year, I believe. And I personally am massively, massively excited about that. I I was one of the 12 people who went to see MacGruber in theatres uh, when it kind of notoriously bombed and had a great time. Uh, I took my mum and we had a great time watching a truly absurd, funny, ridiculous movie. And I cannot wait to see what they do with those characters and with that um, format, with making it a TV show. Uh, I also cannot wait to see Mickey Rourke playing a character called Eno's Queeth which is just a fantastic name for a character. Uh, and I'm really excited to see, really excited to see Sam Elliott play MacGruber's dad, which is just fantastic casting. You could not want for a better, more kind of like, I don't know, representative of a certain kind of old school masculinity character to play uh, the father, uh, actor to play the father of MacGruber, a man who kind of like clearly idolizes images of classical masculinity in such a major way. And yeah, I, I'm just super, super excited to see what they do with that series because all those people are great. Uh, I think that Forte, Will Forte is, is so incredibly funny and so incredibly strange. And I, I'm excited to see what he does with uh, another TV show, uh, especially considering like what a, a triumph Last Man on Earth ended up being. Absolutely. I am fresh to this news. I had no idea that Mugruba was going to series. Mm. I learned about it because my pal Duncrit Hulk shared Will Forte's on-set photo, Backs to the Sun, could barely see <laughs> anyone's face. And you realise, oh wow, Mugruba's actually got that kind of Matt Groening iconic outline rule down. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Quite odd because you think for someone with a sort of shaggy haircut and a body warmer, to as it is, but I am so excited for the silliness. And I think MacGruber is going to work really well in TV mm. and in that kind of 
sitcom plot. And I wonder if it'll be touching upon other sort of uh, serials, other um, detectives with Mac in their names, possibly. Um, mm. And uh, as someone who's been really enjoying rewatching a lot of Quantum Leap through the pandemic, it's like, wow, yeah, it was really quite a, a wild time in, in television. So, I mean, I'm excited to watch anything that has Sam Elliott, Mickey Rourke and Lawrence Fishburne on the same cast list. And I'm just even happier that it's going to be MacGruber. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and final bit of news uh, this week, uh, some very sad news. Uh, it was announced just the other day uh, that uh, Christopher Laverty, who ran the Close on Film uh, blog, uh, passed away uh, unexpectedly uh, at the age of 44. Uh, Christopher was a blogger who wrote about like fashion in film and film through fashion as a lens and who uh, was a really great writer. He's one of the first people I remember meeting through Twitter back in my days when I was also blogging about films and we wrote for some of the same kind of like small outlets and had lots of friends in common and I, I believe I met him only once in person at the uh, Leeds International Film Festival about 10 years ago but uh, he was always like a really lovely guy on Twitter and you know the one time I met him in person and like everyone who knew him like always had like such great things to say and was such a great admirer of him as a writer, uh, host emeritus of the show, Matt Risby sent me a text uh, once he saw the news as well. And we were both kind of like reminiscing about how much we uh, enjoyed his work and how we both, I think kind of had the same reaction to whenever we read his stuff, which was, we kind of felt like, why the fuck are we doing this? Like this guy's clearly <laughs> just so much better than all of us at this. Uh, and you know, his, the success he enjoyed over the years, you know, writing for other sites and the success his blog had and, also, um, you know, he collaborated with Matt's other sites on the Grand Budapest Hotel book that um, they put out a few years ago. And every time he like had something like published somewhere, it was always appointment reading for me. I just thought he was such a great, knowledgeable, insightful writer and just a really nice, supportive guy. You know, I always saw him kind of like really praising and lifting up other writers and uh, just like a real positive force in the world of film blogging and film writing and film culture in general. Um, so I, I just wanted to pay a quick tribute to, to him because I thought he was uh, just a really great guy. And uh, yeah, 44 really is, is no age. So uh, he will be deeply, deeply missed. So we'll go on to our main topic for this week. Again, this is going to be a show and tell episode where each of us brings something that we've watched and we want to kind of talk about. So, Emily, why don't you kick us off? What have you got for show and tell this week? This week, I finally got around to watching The Dead Don't Die, mm. Jim Jarmusch's zombie film. Yeah. And obviously an SRS favourite, if only for how Adam Driver says, ghouls. Mm. Classic line reading. Really just knocked out of the park. And afraid to say, <laughs> sad to say, uh, I was not a fan of the rest of the film as much as I was that line reading. As stellar as it is, and as talented as Adam Driver is, it's difficult to carry an entire film off of one utterance. Mm, yeah. And for anyone who's not familiar with The Dead Don't Die, it's, it's a big goulash of stuff, including Hilda Swinton as a kind of uh, morgue, a, a mortician... Let me get this straight. 
mortician who also happens to be Scottish and is very handy with like a katana in some sort of like Japanese style ritual uh, worship slash martial arts. And Chloe Savigny's in it as well. And I always like it when she's in things. Um, it's a really fantastic cast. Like, can't put it past Jim Jarmusch. She always knows who to invite to the party. Mm. Starts off, you know, reasonably well. And there's something really fun about Bill Murray, who is co-starring with Adam Driver, as they are being sort of deadpan and quite real in as as police in response to what's happening and how things kind of creep up. But I think ultimately it ends up being a little bit too on the nose and just on the surface. Mm-hmm. And it gets to this point where it feels as if all of the kind of fun, fantastical threads are, if anything, distractions from the fact that this isn't a particularly deep film, but it is trying to make certain wider points that zombie films already make, and yet it doesn't really feel like a homage. There's so much direct reference to George Romero, and even as someone who is very much uh, capitalism bad, just watching films that say capitalism bad and without much kind of sympathy or understanding of the of the wider systemic issues, because it essentially blames these people as being mm. individualistic and that the zombies go towards what they were last invested in or, or, or interested in. So it just ends up being quite a shallow victim-blaming sort of aspect of consumerism. And I just wasn't really into it. I was like, Jim, I just want you to really relish this and have a nice time. Because as far as I'm aware, he's not done an awful lot that's like as genre-specific as this. Like, I loved Ghost Dog uh, with Forrest Whitaker, but that wasn't like a martial arts film or, you know, or a samurai film. Um, even though it had elements of it. And I think he's always managed to make films that are artistic and a bit strange and have a really wry sense of humour. And this just didn't feel funny. It felt quite snarky. And I was just disappointed because I just didn't expect it from him. I thought there'd be a little bit more heft to it. Love to see Rizza as a whoopy-ass driver, though. Like, <laughs> And it's a shame because I think in the first third, there's lots of like really great jokes. And then it just kind of goes on a, on a tear. And oh yeah, when, when the UFO turned up, I, I rolled my eyes and made a loud zombie-like noise. Um, it was just kind of throwing it all in, but not in a joyful maximalist way. Just none of it really gelled. And it felt like, the second or third draft being shot instead of like the final draft and I feel like some elements could have been taken out I didn't really understand why a lot of things were in it's interesting to see John Moosh also kind of move into like like more action in terms mm. of like zombies being beheaded and, and all this kind of stuff but it just yeah it just left me with a distinct kind of zombie grown feeling which is a shame, but then off the back of that, I ended up watching the original Ghostbusters because mm. I was for more Bill Murray being deadpan in a fantastical situation. I just I forgot how good it was, and it's again a kind of 
I don't know if it's a critique on capitalism or fantastically satirical, but it is kind of pushing the kind of logic of the American dream and starting up your own business to a to an interesting point. And that kind of bubbles along nicely within a really solid plot. And I just think there's something really nice about a film that is for adults, <laughs> but has ghosts in it. I don't know. Like it's a it's a funny, rambunctious film that's genuinely scary. Like mm. I I've forgotten how much I miss physical effects and how the physical effects in Ghostbusters are pretty much second to none. Like it still looks incredible and that they all, they feel threatening because they feel part of this world. There is something tangible about it. And it just made me kind of feel a bit hollow because even though the dead don't die, have actual zombies shuffling around and there is a moment with a child zombie, which is freaking terrifying. A lot of it's still just some effects and it's not to do down um, how amazing animation and video effects are. That sounded about 100 years old then. Um, <laughs> your VFX, but there's just something about the quality and the craft that still really sings watching it in Ghostbusters. And I think that also manages to kind of keep the stakes and the humour at really good levels throughout. It's not like it suddenly goes really, really serious or, or forgets make jokes so I definitely got my Bill Murray fix but it made me want to watch one of Jim Jarmusch's better films because mm -hmm. I think it also felt I think it's really leaning on like the cast who do a really good job with what they're given but it doesn't feel like a huge amount of thought went into it and that just makes me sad Ed mm. yeah I I watched that couple of months ago now for the first time I think I had a very similar response to you where I watched it and I thought oh you know it had lots of like really good elements obviously the cast are great and like there's so many great people in small roles Tom Waits kind of in the movie he's kind of off to the side of the movie <laughs> and kind of for most of it um but you know like he has all these people who are you know his, his regulars that he likes to bring in and some new faces like Selena Gomez kind of like showing up um or um What's his face? Who always looks like Wan and Dill? Caleb um, Landry Jones. That's the one. Yeah, the the kind of haunt the haunted man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so like there's lots of kind of like new faces mixed in with the old, and, and that stuff's quite good. And I think when what I like about Jarmouche when he does genre stuff is like there's always that weird sense where you kind of have to remind yourself that you're watching a genre movie, like when you're watching Down By Law, like technically that is a prison break movie. Yeah. They do break out of prison, <laughs> but like that's kind of not what a lot of the fun of that movie is. A lot of the fun of that is in their interactions, either in prison or when they're out, you know, there's not much focus on the actual escape or the danger of them being caught again. It's really much about, it's about these kind of a three electric presences being stuck in various small rooms and that's kind of what's great and fun about it or like you said um ghost dog where you know yeah it is a hitman movie but like so much about the vibe of it is is so kind of like different and so distinctive from so many other hitman movies that you kind of find it weird or dead man you know as a western uh or what's the other oh like um only lovers left alive being a vampire movie where yeah. 
where like there's kind of hints of genre stuff in there but they always feel like they're more just kind of like the frame within which he's going to do kind of whatever he wants and i feel like this one i i kind of wonder because i i did read various reviews or and interviews and things where john Mush talked about how much he loved george a romero like he was such a fan of his work and i do kind of wonder if maybe that got in the way like he feels a little too much of a desire to adhere to the to the genre trappings that he that get in the way of all the stuff he wants to do himself because it does feel way more like a straightforward zombie movie than dead man feels like a western or you know all those are the ones that i mentioned so i, I wonder if that's kind of the problem is that the a delicate balance that he maintains in his movies that do have that genre trapping uh, are just sort of out of whack on on that one and it also does feel a little scattered in places like you know there's various bits where people are doing like address to camera and things like that or they try to break the fourth wall which are quite funny but also kind of make the whole thing feel like maybe a little more of a lark than maybe it needs to be for it to totally work and again it's kind of like hard to totally criticize it because you know it's kind of like ah people i like having fun you know like okay you know i can't be too mad at that but it definitely felt like jim jarmusch making a zombie movie seems like it's got potential to be something like really cool and really interesting and really distinctive and while it has elements of that it also just kind of doesn't feel like he's firing on all cylinders in that one that's a really interesting point i think you're entirely correct there where only Lovers Left Alive was Jim Jarmusch's vampire movie, whereas The Dead Don't Die is, I think, so concerned about being reverential that it ends up being referential to a point where you can't really find the core of it or where Jim Jarmusch is in it. And it almost feels like a Jim Jarmusch acolyte or fan making a film. So that fandom does come through because there is clearly so much love for Romero, but it doesn't feel canon. I don't mm-hmm, know. Mm-hmm. And I think there's something really endearing about seeing filmmakers get excited about other filmmakers and that kind of influence. Like if no one's seen uh, the uh, Directors Guild interview between Paul Thomas Anderson and Jonathan Demi, I recommend you do it because PTA is just in full fanboy mode and there is something really nice about seeing, obviously... Jonathan Debbie, much missed, um, be really kind of placid and kind. PTA is just freaking out because he's with one of his <laughs> Really nice. But I think that's kind of the arena I'd rather see it in. And I think it's making tributes to other filmmakers and losing themselves doesn't actually do anyone many favours. I feel like it could have been a really great short and I think I really enjoyed the trailer because they knew exactly to lead with the rules. So it gives us that. I'm not trying to uh, poo-poo it, but I do think it's just lots of different flavours that don't really work together. They're mm. all really nice on their own, but together it's just a bit missing something and flashing. Mm. I do wonder if if maybe it was similar to coffee and cigarettes, if maybe that would have worked if it was like a bunch of discrete shorts about oh yeah what would the concept of a zombie invasion be like 
and how would all these different uh, but at that point i'm just basically saying why doesn't jim jamish make an adaptation of world war z <laughs> which uh i would also like to see and also like the tilda swinton character kind of feels like maybe sort of a reference to because like one of the main characters in the book of world war z is like an otaku who's like you know spends all his life online in japan and then suddenly the world collapses and he's like uh okay i guess i should go outside and you know start chopping people up with a katana so i don't know if maybe that's that's where that element comes in but like maybe something that was less of a single narrative with all these different threads kind of like weaving in and out and instead was like you know the zombie invasion happening in a bunch of different places and being viewed from a different bunch of different viewpoints might have weirdly end up feeling more cohesive than trying to do what he does here where it's like oh yeah it's all through this one town and these like group of people who all kind of end up at one point coming coalescing together in the finale what have you got this week what i've got and it's oddly uh appropriate given what we were talking about because uh you, when you were talking about you know all the, the balance of referential versus reverential and zombie movies in particular it's like make think oh yeah kind of like in like how Shaun of the Dead works really well because you know that's a movie that really owes a lot obviously to George A. Romero and to other zombie films and their directors but you know kind of has its own unique spin and uh, that film's director Edgar Wright has a new movie out which I went to go and see that was the movie that I went to see at the cinema uh, for those keeping track and that movie is a documentary called The Sparks Brothers which is a very long, very detailed documentary about the band Sparks, who, for those who aren't familiar, which um, is apparently a lot of people, I think that has been one of the interesting things about that this movie rolling out is so many people either not having heard of Sparks or having a lot of uh, misconceived notions about Sparks, uh, such as that they're British or in uh, like I fought for year Dutch for, for years Dutch um, for no real reason I just always assumed they were a European band but um, Sparks are primarily a duo uh, two brothers from California Ron and Russell Mayle who have been um, working together since the late 60s and you know have had quite a few hits in different parts of the world that I mainly know them or I mainly knew them uh, as a kid for the song uh, this town ain't big enough for the both of us, which was a huge hit in the UK in the 70s. And my mum always used to like to talk about how Sparks were one of her first gigs. And she learned all the words to that song and still knows them all because I think she was going on a date with someone and she wanted to be able to sing along to at least one of the songs to impress them. And so they've always been a band that I've known about. And I always assumed, oh, they must be like huge or they must have like a big following because they had that one song that was so massive in the 70s. And um, this documentary is kind of kind of exists basically because they're this band that have been around for a very very long time, but who have always been something of a cult preposition. You know, they've occasionally flirted with commercial success, but have always kind of avoided it uh, for the most part. Or they have made choices to kind of follow their muse and to kind of go in different directions regardless of what the trends are. And Edgar Wright basically wanted to have a fairly comprehensive account of their career so that they could, fi- he could finally say like look at this band look at all the great music they've made look at all the people they've influenced you know more people should know who they are because they are this like very distinctive uh du- duo and you know various kind of supporting uh members who have who have been working with them for, for long periods of time and 
I really, really enjoyed the documentary. I I wouldn't I, I haven't been like a massive fan of Sparks for a long time. I think I've only really gotten into them in the last sort of five or six years. The the, the thing that really sparked it off for me was when they did a collaborative album with uh, Franz Ferdinand called FFS, mm-hmm. uh, which is a really fun album that, uh, uh, and that made me kind of like go back and listen to all of their old albums and just get super into that sort of stuff. And then every time they, they put out two albums since then, which have just kind of like reignited me every time. It's like, oh, I should go back and re-listen to Kimono My House or Number One in Heaven or, you know, all those great early albums. And what I really liked about the the, the film and what, what initially frustrated me about it is it's very conventional. It's very, there's lots of talking heads, various band members who were in the band at various points, fans, um, are, are artists who have been influenced by them, uh, music writers, you know, Paul Morley shows up, who is like, you know, just a golf course. That's who you would bring in if you want someone to talk about Sparks, you know, the quintessential mm-hmm. British uh, music journal. And on the one hand, I kind of thought, you know, this is fairly, you know, conventional. You're going through their entire career chronologically. They talk at least in some detail about all 25 of their studio albums. Obviously, some of them, like Kimono My House, which was like their big hit, the one that has um, This Town Big Enough for the Both of Us on it, gets a lot of attention versus Plagiarism, which was their album where they covered a lot of their old songs but with an orchestra which they are very dismissive about and basically said yeah we were told into that we didn't really want to do it um which only gets like 30 seconds but um that seems appropriate because they themselves don't seem to consider it to be a significant work and part of me was like you know for a band that are very funny very witty that jumped around in different styles doing this in this chronological order seems to be very straightforward and maybe like not totally fitting with the nature of the band but around halfway through there came a moment where I kind of thought oh this approach actually is perfect for this because like I've listened to every Sparks album I think um certainly all of the early ones and the more recent ones I think there's some in the middle that I probably haven't got to yet but I've never really had a sense of the arc of their career they've always just been a band who are always around (laughs) making music so I never kind of got the sense of like when were they at their most popular? When were they at their lowest? And so what the film does in going through this is it does really provide an arc for them. And there's this one section where it talks about how in the late 80s and early 90s, they didn't put out any music. They weren't signed to any labels because they were working on the soundtrack for a Tim Burton directed anime adaptation, which ended up not happening, but they invested years and years in this project and they weren't signed and they just kept going in to their studio every day and making and working on music and just kind of plugging away. And you get this real sense through talking to their collaborators, one of who like tears up and, and really um, kind of gets really emotional talking about seeing the dedication that they had to their craft, even when no one was around to hear it, of the frustration that they must have felt. You know, these two guys who have been making music and they have no way for people to hear it, having these projects fall apart. And this section culminates in them talking about the song, uh, When Do I Get to Sing My Way, which was a big hit for them in the 90s, particularly in Germany. <laughs> They're very much a big in Japan band. <laughs> like every other, every other section is like, oh yeah, this song was like massive. They're huge in uh, South America now <laughs> and all this sort of stuff. But um, it was a big hit for them. It's this like dance song where their talk, which is, 
on the one level is this kind of like typical sparks like wry witty song about disappointment about when are you going to have your kind of like moment in the sun when your thing's going to work out for you but having it as the culmination to this like five or six minutes of people talking about this real dark period it comes across as this like really naked earnest plea for someone to recognize the work that you're doing to work recognize you know that you are there you you're trying your hardest and it's just never ever seemed to work out for you and I found that to be so moving seeing that in context that I just like burst into tears because it really does this great job of selling the idea of these two guys who've just like put their all in finally having a song that like draw people's attention back to them and it, it very much reminded me of like the ending of Edward when he's like you know this is the one they're going to remember me for except uh, <laughs> the song is good and uh, Edward's movie was not and that for me was like the thing that kind of justified how conventional I think the movie is in a lot of ways it's like oh yeah some things are conventions because they just really work when you do them well <laughs> and uh, I feel like Edgar Wright like did that really really well uh, and that's not to undersell some of the ticks that he brings to it like one of the running jokes in it that I really enjoyed is that every time a famous person drop crops up uh, Edgar Wright will try and think of some fun way to make the um you know the subtitle saying who they are fun so the first time he does this Beck shows up and it says Beck and underneath it it just says see above uh which I think is very funny and then when he has two members of Duran Duran on one of them has Duran on and the other one has Duran under uh and yeah so it, it kind of like plays around with that sort of stuff but I, it's one of those things where i think ultimately it's kind of complimentary because the thing that i think the movie does really well in terms of illuminating why sparks are a great singular band is that they do always have that those different layers where on the one level you think ah they're a funny band who makes novelty songs on the next level these are actually like really beautifully written melodies and they're kind of like complex ideas and on the other level like they're kind of using irony to genuinely kind of express particularly Ron Mayle because he writes all the songs Ron Mayle's kind of like viewpoint of the world as an extremely awkward um guy who maybe has had a fair deal of disappointments in his life who gets to use his incredibly charismatic and charming younger brother as kind of like the mouthpiece for all those things and I think the movie does like a really good job of getting that sort of thing uh, across. I'm really looking forward to seeing it. As someone who has followed Edgar Wright on Instagram for a long time, mm-hmm. he's always been singing praises of Sparks. And I was only vaguely aware of them as a band who weren't quite a one-hit wonder or novelty, but they were ones that I would... They were a band that I would always remember because whenever I'd watch Top of Pops 2... Mm-hmm. Uh, no longer with us in Rockness. Their performances would always make me feel really strange because they mm. were kind of funny but also quite creepy. And it took me the longest time to realize they're actually American. Yeah. They have a kind of just a sort of offbeat sensibility because they didn't seem that fussed with being cool. They were just wanting to make the sound that they wanted to make. Mm. And didn't really mind if they unsettled anyone in the process. So I'm looking forward to seeing one of their biggest fans really sort of appreciate them. And that sounds, yeah, so moving in terms of 
when you kind of find the the kind of human narrative under the particular details, which is these people have been doing what they want to do and they're not necessarily given the appreciation that they deserve and it's hard not to feel emotional tremor Mm. Yeah, there's a, a very funny bit with uh, where they're talking about how, like that song, um, When Do I Get to Sing My Way, being a big hit in the 90s, and that's like a dance song, and it sounds very Pet Shop Boysy, it sounds very erasure and like them talking about the slightly galling thing where people were talking comparing them to these bands that very clearly owed a lot to them because there are like like um guys from uh, andy bell from erasure is in the movie a fair bit talking about it um one of the guys from depeche mode is in it and they're all talking about like how much that sound particularly the, the stuff they did in the uh, the late 70s early 80s when they worked with Giorgio Moroder and essentially invented the sound of the 80s before anyone else was like so many of that they were like years ahead of their time and ended up making music that influenced a lot of people who had way more success with it and how kind of like galling that was on some level for them to be compared to all these people who were like uh, actually no they're kind of ripping off what we did and we're just kind of like continuing to do the thing that we have always done and that being uh, quite funny but that there is one bit which upset me as a fan of the Pet Shop Boys where um, someone is telling a story about seeing the Pet Shop Boys uh, backstage at a festival or something and saying hey why don't you guys ever talk about Sparks when you talk about your um, influences and Neil Tennant just being very curt and dismissive about it but yeah I think that's one of the things as well that it does really really well is because so many of the talking heads are fellow musicians who were kind of like drawn to them from their performances or from hearing their music being just like super enthusiastic to talk about what that music meant to them and how they felt like Sparks were teaching them new ways to uh, express themselves musically and there is something like, like you were saying about seeing directors talk to each other about how, how much their work matters like there is something just like really nice about seeing these people who have in some cases just had like tremendous success talk like about what this one band really meant to them and also it's just a really fun showcase for how down to earth and funny the male brothers are in one particular bit that I thought was really funny is they talk about how Paul McCartney recorded a song in the 80s and he did a video for it where the video is him performing as various other pop stars. So he's there and he's like dressed up as Buddy Holly at one point. And one of the people he's dressed up as is Ron Mayle with the Hitler moustache. And Russell Mayle is just kind of like saying like, yeah, I kind of felt like I had to respect you a bit more knowing that a Beatle had dressed up as you and all this sort of stuff. They have such a lovely... They have such a lovely, like, brotherly, fraternal dynamic that um, it was an absolute joy to kind of see play out over the course of a movie, just seeing how close they clearly are uh, and, like, how their that working relationship has clearly influenced so much of what they've done. So we'll end this episode as we end all our episodes with Shot Reverse Shot Recommends, which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you, the listeners, will enjoy as well. Emily, what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week? I have a little interactive mini theatre piece that I only found out about today through you know the <laughs> the Twitter algorithm it giveth and it taketh away mm. um, but it's called Philip 21 and it's on the BBC Taster 
website, which I think is not sung enough about. And you can find it, I think if you just Google Philip 21, you should be able to find it. I found it through, like I say, Twitter, and I can't remember exactly which account I follow, but it is the first collaboration that I'm aware of between BBC and Pellucid Theatre Company. And it takes about 15, 20 minutes, and it is a, an interactive theatre piece where you're on a date with Philip and you have various options as you interact with him. And I just thought it was a really nice piece of, again, you don't want to say content because that feels so shallow now, but a different screen experience. And I think would be really exciting to see more in an app, but it managed to kind of get across a character and a lot of issues without hitting you around the face with them. Because sometimes the simplest thing is to just listen to someone's experiences. I felt like I had a conversation. Really nicely done. So Philip 21 is my recommendation. Cool. I'm going to recommend a movie that I watched uh, a few days ago. I was looking for something to watch. It was late at night. I was like, what can I watch that's like around about 90 minutes? Because that seems like, you know, the, the right length before I go to sleep. And so I decided to watch my first ever John Waters movie, um, having never seen any of his movies, but obviously being aware of him as a uh, pop culture figure going back to uh, his appearance on The Simpsons, uh, I think, which I think was probably the gateway for a lot of people being introduced to John Waters. Uh, so I decided to watch his movie Multiple Maniacs, which uh, is a movie in which uh, Divine is kind of the head of a group of various reprobates who perform shocking works of perversion in a park and then from there there's like various intrigue between the members of the group and there's there's murder and there's cannibalism it's a good time it's not so much a movie that was released as unleashed that's kind of the vibe that it has as this real stark low quality black and white cinematography so it all feels like a snuff film and the stuff that happens in it is truly transgressive and wild and strange even now there was a scene towards the end involving a paper mache lobster that I got very self-conscious about my neighbors overhearing because there was some rough stuff happening <laughs> and I was just kind of like this would be a hard thing to explain if someone came to the door and said what the hell are all those noises but I, I thought it was absolutely fantastic just like a tremendously good time tremendously bad taste and I don't know if it's the best introduction to John Waters' work for most people. Obviously, it was one of his first movies in reality, and I think it was the first one he had done that actually had like synchronized sound because his early movies, I think, were silence. Um, but I personally found it to be an absolutely riotous good time. And if you want to watch something that is perfectly riding the line between deplorable trash and uh, elevating art, then uh, I think you could do no no better than to watch multiple maniacs which i believe is on the criterion channel currently i don't think it's expiring or anything it's just i think it's just there and i think they put it out on disc this year as well or last year so seek it out it's a truly singular experience and uh, i look forward to watching more john Waters movies because he he definitely feels like a, a major blind spot for me 
If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, PlayerFans, Spotify, all the usual places, raters, reviewers, and recommend it to your friends. It's the best way to help us grow our audience. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, where we are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next time with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. Bye.